I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I am Mary Wilkerson, your co-host. Uh, we are excited to release new episodes of this once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Archbishop, thanks for joining us, and welcome. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mike. Good to be with you, Mary. It's good. good. How, was your last, how was your last month since last time we spoke? I've had a very good month, really. Uh, most recently, I had a, a wonderful weekend at the cathedral. On Saturday morning, I got to ordain four permanent deacons, uh, so we're recruiting people to uh, unleash the gospel. We got more personnel in the fight. That's very good. And then yesterday was a special commemoration of people who uh, have lost uh, babies during their pregnancy. Mm. And also it's an occasion for people to come to the cathedral who are trying to have children to pray f for that gift. And I really enjoyed that. I was really edified that uh, people take such a very personal thing and bring that to, to the church for prayer. Yeah. I was really moved. Yeah. I was going to say, I'd imagine that it would be quite moving to see all these families, and you know they have these stories while they're there celebrating Mass with you. Right, and uh, you know I know stories like that in my own family, so mm -hmm. I'm very, very aware of uh, how deeply people feel about this. And the wonderful thing is that they bring it to Jesus. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. that willingness to be vulnerable, even in a public forum like that, which is great, like you yeah. said, to ask for the prayers. Wonderful. As we move into fall, are you are you a fan of the fall weather? Are you? I do like the fall very, yes. very much. Uh, I like it uh, at least until we get to when the leaves are all gone, and then it's kind of a downer. But uh, <laughs> when the dreary. leaves are changing, it's really beautiful. Oh, and I like the crisp day. Oh, that's how I feel, too. This weekend was really—the weather was beautiful, where it was just— cold enough, not too cold, and like you said, crisp. That's how I describe it as well. And the smell of fall, right? Like, right. oh, it's so good. Um, so we had our first podcast. Did you get any feedback? I did get some. Uh, people told me that uh, they listened, uh, they enjoyed it, and uh, some of it was, way to go, old guy. Uh, it's good to see that you're with the times. <laughs> Embracing this medium. So, and Mike, did you hear from people that they enjoyed it as well? I did. I did very yeah, much. Yeah. I'll tell you, it was funny because they did a, a write-up in Detroit Catholic about it. And people in my life were quite excited about it as well. And just being able to hear from our shepherd in this way, is, it's such a unique way to hear your voice. So again, just thanking you for doing this with oh, I'm us. I'm glad to do it. Thank yes. you. Archbishop, I know this last month you attended a conference for bishops on the new evangelization in Steubenville, Ohio, which is very close to Mary and I. It's at our alma mater. Um, well, how, how was that? How did that go? What are some takeaways you had from that? It was a really fine conference. Uh, was uh, bishops who wanted to subscribe, uh, run by people who uh, have uh, a zeal for new evangelization, but an expertise in leadership and leadership planning. And mm -hmm. they put their their expertise at the disposition of the 30 or 40 bishops who wanted to be there. So I was very encouraged to see my brothers, who are on various stages of making a commitment to become, and this was the title for the conference, to become uh, an evangelizing diocese. Mm. What mm. a beautiful thing. How often do you gather with bishops from across the United States? How often would you say that you meet with groups of bishops? Well, the, the most important meetings I have are those with uh, people of the Episcopal Conference. So in June, 
and in November, I'm with all the bishops of the United States. Okay. In March and September, I'm with the leadership group, which is about uh, 50, okay. 50 bishops. Okay. And then there are other times I'm at conferences that bishops are present. Fantastic. You have such a unique experience. I bet it's edifying to be with people that are in the same like reality discussing really important things like evangelization. It is. Uh, I think at every level in the life of the church, God has given us one another to walk along with us on the way to the new Jerusalem. And um, it's really uh, edifying and helpful for me to be walking with brother bishops. That's awesome. And then we also had the celebration of 100 years, the founding of the seminary. And September 1919 is right. when the seminary was founded after several attempts I read about uh, just the other day, right? Right, because it's not an easy project to launch, uh, to start an institution like the se a, a seminary. And so this was the fourth time, I believe, that a bishop in uh, our diocese had tried to start a seminary, and uh, it, it finally took. It was a great occasion. That's awesome. And can you speak a little bit about the legacy of Sacred Heart in the Detroit area, in our church, kind of what your view of it is? Well, uh, as times have changed, the uh, gifts that come to us from the seminary have changed because uh, the talents and, and the charisms of the alumni have changed over time. But it's always been about, as the cornerstone says, I will give you shepherds according to my own heart. I think that was the insight of Bishop Gallagher when he founded it. Uh, he understood that it's only by having hearts configured to Jesus that anybody entrusted with the care of uh, Jesus's people are going to be able to connect with them. And so if you think back on some of the priests who have had an impact on your life, I think about those in the whole course of my 70 years, almost all of them inevitably had some experience here that helped them prepare for their, their ministry. And since about 19, uh, I think, uh, in the mid-70s, uh, the seminary's been engaged in uh, uh, preparing for service, uh, lay women and men who work alongside of our priests, and as well as deacons, of course. So the, there is a very, very rich uh, heritage and contribution. It's a pretty powerful thing when you walk down the halls of Sacred Heart and you can see the different class photos of all of the people that have been through, and so many of them, like you said, serving us in all different ways. What an awesome thing. When you think of Unleash the Gospel and the work of the seminary, how do you think that they're working together to kind of change the culture in the Archdiocese of Detroit? Well, as a matter of fact, the uh, uh, focus on the new evangelization was uh, made part of the seminary's culture before we worked uh, so aggressively to make it part of the culture of the whole archdiocese. So I think they were kind of John the Baptist about this, oh. <laughs> and uh, the progress that the seminary made in uh, uh, adopting this powerful mission, I think has provided a very helpful platform for us to move forward for the whole diocese. That's great. Awesome. That's wonderful. Archbishop, our, our topic for today, we wanted to talk about Extraordinary Missionary Month, which was um, two years ago announced by Pope Francis himself uh, in October of 2000—I'm sorry, 2017, he announced it, that the October of 2019 would be an Extraordinary Mission Month for the entire Church, celebrating our Christian obligation to share uh, the gospel. 
through personal witness, uh, through supporting mission, even uh, at Gentes, if you will. Uh, it's also the 100th year anniversary of Maximum Elude, um, an apostolic letter by Pope Benedict XV, uh, proclaiming the Church's missionary role in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that letter, Maximum Elude, and um, uh, kind of what kind, type of impact it's had on the Church and even on yourself? Well, the letter was uh, the charter that Pope Benedict XV offered right after the end of the First World War. So once the great powers of Europe began to uh, move away from the war, and once the Church could begin to think about her mission after the war, Pope Benedict had a vision of the need for the new churches in Africa and Asia to become totally indigenized. Mm. That for too long, uh, the effort to evangelize in Africa and Asia had been tied to the colonial powers. There was a hesitancy to form uh, a local clergy out of which then a local hierarchy uh, would be taken. And so he, this is really the charter for a whole new phase of the church's missionary life. And um, it, it, it's had a tremendous impact when you look and even look and see the list of bishops in Asia and Africa who are uh, from, are the sons of Asia and Africa. You look at the members of the College of Cardinals who are from Asia and Africa. This is all the fruit of this impulse, this insight of Pope Benedict. Mm. And I mean, for me, it, it's uh, one more reminder that the church, as Pope uh, Paul said, is missionary by her nature. Mm. Uh, now, uh, the missionary field isn't just Asia and Africa, it's uh, Monroe County and uh, <laughs> Troy and uh, uh, Hamtramck and, right. and Detroit. And I have something uh, I meant to comment on this. Uh, one of the important figures of our own diocese was instrumental in advancing uh, Maximum Illud. Cardinal Mooney was, uh, prior to 1926, for a few years, he was the spiritual director, Father Mooney, at the North American College in Rome. Mm -hmm. And to advance the work of Maximum Illud, Pius the the 11th decided he needed representatives in Africa and Asia in order to help identify priests who could be made bishop. And so uh, Pius XI chose Father Mooney to be his delegate, his apostolic delegate in India. So he made him an archbishop and he sent him to India with the mandate to advance this program of Maximum Illude, which I think is a wonderful uh, thing for us to remember how a man who then came back to be our bishop after he finished that time in serving the Holy Father directly was so instrumental in establishing the, the local uh, bishops as a hierarchy in India. Well, and you know what's really incredible about that is that in my area, I live in Redford, several of our parishes have Indian priests that have come now and are serving as mission territory where we're living. So just the complete circle of that, right, that Father Mooney would go to India and help to establish that. And then now we're being, we're benefiting right. from the priesthood in India in the Archdiocese of Detroit. That's 
Fantastic. Father Socorro, I don't know if you know him. Oh, I do. I do. Oh, we just love him so much. He's been such a gift to our family. And so what a wonderful kind of connection of the universality of our church, right? That's fantastic. That's the good side of what goes around comes around. Yes, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) very, very, very cool. One distinction I was was wondering if you could uh, allude us to a little bit, when we talk about evangelization, and especially a document like this, um, you know, there's also the distinguishing factor between evangelization, which is agentes, and then evangelization, which is kind of what we uh, know nowadays, very much the new evangelization. Would you mind speaking to that distinction a little bit? Um, just, I know, as we were reading this document, uh, Maximum Ill, it, it came to mind that like, oh, this, this would be a good moment to kind of share the distinction there. Well, uh, evangelization is evangelization. It's always about personal witness. It's always about one-to-one. It's always about the kerygma, Jesus Christ died for sinners, is risen from the dead, he's my hope. But the, the point of the, uh, the title New Evangelization is to remind us that there are parts of the world that once took the gospel for granted, it was made intimately part of the culture, and now it's being bleached out. And so we can't forget that in those parts of the world, like our own homeland, we need to take up the work of evangelization again. And I think the, uh, this w- uh, name, New Evangelization, which I think goes back to St. John Paul, is his way and a way that's worked in the life of the church to remind us that it isn't only places that have never heard the gospel that need evangelization, but we need to be about this too. So it is, it's, it's kind of a specific difference. Generically, evangelization's evangelization, yeah, yeah. but we're talking about the different audiences. And in fact, some of the commentators say that uh, re-evangelizing, the new evangelizing, is in some ways more challenging mm. because people say, oh, we've heard all of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's get on to the next new thing. Yep. Yeah. You know, we're bored with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Right. A follow-up question to that that I was wondering, and you have kind of different eyes at a global level of church. Are there places in the world that have not heard the initial message of Jesus Christ still today? Oh, yes. That that's new information. I, I was with uh, a priest, a, a bishop from India last week at a meeting, and there would be millions of people who who really haven't heard the gospel. That's incredible to me. There, I, I don't remember. Uh, oh, it's, it's about India. There's a story from uh, the Synod on the New Evangelization where an Indian bishop got up and told this account. So there was a young man who had been through the, the, the church's schools in India, and at some point somebody gave him a copy of one of the Gospels, and he read it, and he he then came back to, I guess, one of the teachers, one of the priest teachers, and he said, it says here that Jesus rose from the dead. How come you never told us about this? Wow. And so... And he had been through Catholic schooling, you said? Right. And oh, my so, gosh. And so the bishop offered this as a, a, a witness to how we can't take the evangelizing for granted, mm. and there are lots of people who have never even heard the kerygma for the first time. Yeah. We had here at the seminary for some years ago uh, students from China preparing for the priesthood, and one of them told me that uh, there are millions of people in China who are so hungry to hear the good news. 
It's incredible when you think about that, just the two different landscapes, people that had never heard it. And then people like you said that have taken it for granted and kind of lost the message in these two different um, ways that we need to really address this sending out of this message. And I heard a story some years ago that even in places where you think it uh, had been heard and uh, it it's uh, forgotten, uh, you can't take that for granted. I heard a story about a very you know, highly motivated university student in uh, Hamburg in Germany who walked into a church and heard a prayer and thought it was just beautiful but didn't know exactly what it was and so began to ask lots of different people and he didn't get much of an answer. But finally he found somebody and he told them a little bit about the prayer and the person said, Oh, that's the Our Father. That's the Lord's Prayer. So here's a whole, he represents a whole generation of people in Germany wow. who, have, who, who don't have a clue about the Christian culture and the elements of the, the Christian life. That's really incredible. And uh, I don't, maybe, there must be places like that in the United States as well. I'm sure. So when you heard that um, Pope Francis was going to have this month, October, be this extraordinary month of missions, what went through your mind, especially considering some of the work that we've been doing in the diocese with our synod, with Unleash the Gospel? Do you see it kind of tying together? Oh, that's exactly what I thought. Uh, <laughs> how, how are we going to leverage this and uh, what we're doing to advance what the Holy Father's asking us to think about and how what the Holy Father's doing at the worldwide level can give us some juice for Unleash the Gospel. Right. So right. what types of things do you know are being done at the Vatican to celebrate this month? Well, one of the most important things is the Synod for Amazonia, um, which is a way to think about how to bring the gospel to that part of uh, the Amazon River area. Um, also, I, I believe there are some uh, special commemorations. We have here on uh, Mission Sunday, we're having a big observance at uh, Shrine of the Little Flower, which is really very appropriate because, you know, uh, St. Therese, the Little Flower, is one of the patrons of the missions uh, because she never, I think people speculate she only left France twice in her life and she certainly never went on the mission, but she cared deeply about the mission and she prayed zealously for it. And so it's a reminder that there are lots of ways to have a missionary heart. Yeah. When will be the when is World Mission Sunday for the Archdiocese? Is it October? I think it's the twentieth. Okay. And this celebration at the the Shrine Basilica is at twelve thirty okay. on Sunday morning. That's fantastic for us to gather together. And I did love uh I love contemplating Saint Therese being one of the patrons of the missions because oh. she didn't go in. Like, I think that gives us an understanding of our own role in this missionary activity of the church. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get on a plane and end up somewhere in Africa or India, right? Like, Well, and there are lots of people who do that, actually. Right? There are a lot of people in our archdiocese who do go on the mission for a while, wow. a time in their life. It's really very, very edifying. It's great. Archbishop, for those who, who aren't necessarily able to get on a plane and go to the Amazon or some um, exotic place, is there something specific that you would uh, call upon us to do in the Archdiocese uh, to, to embrace this Extraordinary Missionary Month? Well, prayer is very, very important, of course, uh, because it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that the mission will be extended. I think to pray for vocations, 
uh, for uh, men and women to join the missionary effort. Uh, this is one of the great difficulties we have right now is there aren't enough members of uh, the Mary Knowles Society, the Society of the Divine Word. Uh, there, there are a whole host of both communities for men and women who are dedicated to the mission. So, and to pray for people from our families to mm -hmm. take up the yeah. mission. In a letter to the clergy last month, you presented the Holy Father's request as a confirmation of the path upon which we have started. How do you see our local church's mission of unleashing the gospel fitting in with the universal call of the church? We're all about the same task. It's all about uh, letting the Holy Spirit loose in our lives. And as a matter of fact, you know, I've talked about how the, the sons and daughters of the Archdiocese of Detroit can go on mission. If we uh, embrace this missionary vocation, that's going to happen quite naturally, I think. Yeah. And so uh, it isn't a zero-sum game as somehow if uh, a young woman from our community uh, goes to uh, Papua New Guinea on the mission, we've lost her. As a matter yeah. of fact, right. that's a blessing for us. Yeah. It's an interesting way to think of the whole church, too, just how we're all connected to each other, which you've said several times that, you know, what we're doing in India matters here and the formation that we're doing at the seminary where we just celebrated a hundred years, right? And the people, I bet if you looked at who came through the seminary, the work that they've done in the missions, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, and one thing I should mention is we have our own local group of uh, women living the religious life, the Home Visitors of Mary, and they have gotten themselves planted in Nigeria. And as a matter of fact, there are now more Nigerian women in the Home Visitors of Mary than there are women from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Wow. As an enculturation, like right. uh, Maxwell Mill had kind of called for and asked for. That's great. Right. Wonderful. And I do like that piece that we go in and we learn from the culture and then we bring Jesus to the culture. It's not trying necessarily to make their culture what we envision is right. what they should be doing, right? And, and as, as important as all of this is for the salvation of souls, I always like to remind everyone that it is about the glory of God, mm. and God needs to be glorified in indigenous languages. God needs to be praised in Chinese. God oh. needs to be praised in Hindi. God needs to be praised. He deserves to be praised in the languages of Africa and Asia. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. Mm. All of this symphony of praise, one song in, in many tones and languages. This is kind of off the cuff a little bit, but what, what would you say is your most memorable, your personal most memorable evangelical kind of experience? Um, whether it be just something that was local or something that happened here, or if you had done in your travels, um, just an evangelical moment, an opportunity that you've had uh, where you saw the lights go on for somebody, maybe in the proclamation of the kerygma or that kind of opportunity? It was uh, when I was with Steve Dawson on an occasion. I don't know if you know Steve. Mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the leader of uh, the St. Paul Evangelization. And he's a good mentor for me about uh, the simple way to evangelize. And I was with him one time in a restaurant. <laughs> and uh, there's there's no holding Steve back, you know. He's always uh, always looking to share the gospel, and because I was with him, I got to be a partner with him in in evangelizing. That was really important. And another time, Steve helped me was to mentor me on street evangelization in Royal Oak on a Saturday afternoon. 
Did you do that? Did you go to Royal Oak and do the street evangelization? I did. I you did. did. How was that experience? Oh, well, uh, it took me way beyond my comfort zone. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'd imagine. I'm, yeah. I'm an introvert, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a really wonderful experience. Wow. I'm, I'm not an expert after one time. But sure. No, it, it really was beautiful for me. And I give God praise that I was able to be, be there with him and, and be part of what we were what the whole group was doing. Well, and I'll say I find it really inspiring when I hear different stories of members of the clergy just out in the streets offering the sacraments, inviting people to ask questions. I think that's such a powerful way to kind of, at a real basic level, invite people to hear this message of truth that we know that we have. But it does take courage. Well, we have one priest who has created a kind of a sandwich board with um, uh, chalk on, you know, a chalkboard, and uh, he he goes around to uh, lunch wagons and makes himself available for confession. Oh my God, that's great. It's so beautiful because it's so simple. But when we're talking about people that maybe haven't heard the message or haven't heard it in a way that connects with them, so that they understand the message, those simple places that we can be present to invite people is. That's really incredible. Archbishop, when you did the street evangelization, uh, I know you said it was, it, was, it was pushing you out of your comfort zone, which I think many of our listeners could probably identify with. How, how were you received in those moments, like when you did actually make the face-to-face contact? Only one person was a little abrupt and, and wasn't really rude, but just sort of said, no, thank you, and walked mm-hmm. away. Most everybody is very kind, and the one of the uh, approaches is to ask people, is there something I can pray for mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. And people respond to that. Yeah. It's beautiful. That's great. Awesome. Anything else that you think that we should know as we kind of move through this extraordinary month of missions to kind of encourage us in all the different places, us as your, your flock, in all the different vocations that we're living with in the Archdiocese of Detroit to help you with your mission to unleash the gospel in this diocese? Well, uh, two things. One, to remind parents that they are the first missionaries for their children, and uh, it is about uh, sharing their life of faith with their children. Content, yes, but a whole way of being a disciple. Uh, It's a little bit like uh, a a mom or dad teaching uh, one of the kids to ride a bike or to play soccer. Uh, you're sharing something. It's not just pouring content in. So this is not to be overlooked. The, you know, we typically we've said in the in the baptism rite it says you are the first. Uh, you know, what how is it? Teachers of the faith. Maybe we should translate that. You are the first evangelizers in the faith. And the other is back to Father Solanus. We need to thank God ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I thank God for how this will bear fruit, and I am confident it will, but I'm not confident how it will. One of the uh, blessings of being able to do this podcast is being able to ask the faithful to ask you questions. So we've invited people to email eyesonjesuspodcast at aod.org to ask questions of their shepherds. And you've been so, or shepherd, you've been so generous to be willing to answer some questions. So are you okay to go into a little bit of a question answer? Shoot the moon. Fantastic. (laughs) So the first question that I have for you is from Edie Montana, who is a state for cancer patient. She's worried about making amends. She's from St. Andre Bessette 
in eCourse. Her question is, and I think it's such a good one because so many of us wonder about this, does unfinished business or unresolved relationship troubles between family and friends in any way inhibit our transition into heaven? When I was thinking about this, uh, it occurred to me that the biggest context in which to speak about this is purgatory itself. Our confidence in purgatory is a confidence in a process by which uh, unfinished business gets finished. And the business that needs to get finished before we can see God is that we're attuned to receive him totally and give ourselves back to him totally. And so in terms of relationships, if there is something that needs to be attuned after uh, when one dies and it isn't uh, settled, this is the way for it to happen. Whether that's about me and what happens to happen in my heart or what eventually has to happen in the heart of my brother, my cousin, my mm-hmm. father. And in fact, it isn't only that it gets fixed, but it becomes a source of even greater grace and glorying, glorifying to God. There is a conviction about God's providential guidance of the world, and it's a true conviction that God permits uh, bad things, evil things to happen because he knows that by the invocation of his power, this can be transformed into something even better. So uh, for uh, Ms. Montana, not only will it be settled, but it will be even better than if it had never happened in the first place. Mm. That time of purification in purgatory is such a gift of mercy, right? For us to be able to learn to love like God, to become. To learn to love like God and to give him thanks for being so merciful to experience that and to be to be open to his grace. It's incredible to think of the new eyes that we'll see our lives through as we enter into the eternal kingdom. You know? And and the question is about unresolved relationships. I mean, there are some... <clears throat> what came to mind when I read that was to think about family relationships, uh-huh. uh, jealousies, those kinds of things. But think about relationships that are deeply hostile and inimical. And even those relationships... Uh, if there is repentance, even those relationships will be healed and transformed. I'll be next to uh, my enemy in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's wild to think of. So, so in as much as we can resolve those things here and now, before we even pass through eternal life into eternal life, uh, the better. Yeah. You know. Amen. That's great. Wonderful. Archbishop, I have a question from uh, Harold Schmidt, and you kind of alluded to this actually in the previous question, but Harold Schmidt asks from St. Daniel Parish in Clarkston, does God uh, allow bad things to happen? And if so, why? Well, he allows them because he's made us free, and uh, we are not puppets, and he's took this tremendous risk, and he needs to—if if his plan is that he wants us to be his sons and daughters— and to love him, not like servants, but he wants to see and love in us what he sees and loves in Jesus, and he wants from us not love like Jesus' love, but the love of Jesus in our hearts, that's a risk because we can misuse that capacity not to love him like sons, but to rebel uh, like rebellious sons. So 
if he's going to be in a covenant with us, he's got to take this risk. It's really about having confidence in the power of his grace and in his love. And why does he permit it? He permits them because he is confident that when we bring the bad things to him, his healing power can make them even better than what things would have been in the first place. And the great sign, the sacrament for this, is the death and rising of Jesus. What bad thing that could God have permitted worse than the murder of God? There has never been anything so bad as trying to kill God. And it has become, because of the abandonment and trust of Jesus, uh, it has become the means for making, transforming every evil thing into something good. So when we walk through really hard times and tragedy and some tragedies that seem beyond our control, would you say kind of meditating on the cross and the resurrection can bring peace? Is there anything else we can do to kind of wrestle with why these tragedies are happening to us in our personal lives when we know we have a God who loves us? Well, that's where you have to begin and end is, though I don't see God's love in this, I am confident he loves me. Hmm. Um, And I For myself, when I'm wrestling with something that's a a bitter uh, reality, I have to say again and again, do I believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and he can make something good out of this? And I trust that God loves me so much that in fact he cares more about making me happy than I care about it. Mm. So those were two kind of really heavy questions. (laughs) You know, kind of the mysteries of life. Um, What we're going to ask you now is, um, what is your favorite feast day and how do you celebrate it? Jamie from St. Augustine and St. Monica wanted to know that, and I'm so curious about that answer as well. Well, as long as you don't hold me to my favorite. I mean, that's what the question says. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm going to turn it into a favorite. (laughs) Yes, I like that. And one of my favorites is the feast day of Our Lady's Apparition in Lourdes, Mm. uh, which is, I forget I think it's the 11th of February, and very close to that is the celebration of the World Day of the Sick. And I have a great devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes. I was taught that when I was a little kid by my mom and dad and the uh, the nuns and the priests in the parish, and it means a great deal to me. And when I went out to Oakland to be the bishop, I got very involved with the Knights and Dames of Malta, who every year go on pilgrimage to Lourdes with the sick. And I've been about nine or ten times wow. on that pilgrimage. And so Lourdes is a very important place for me. Uh, and it has been the way for me to learn and to think about how uh, God wants to touch us uh, in a very uh, powerful way, uh, in a very simple way, uh, where we are weak and poor. And I think that's that Our Lady of Lourdes is an evangelist, I think. Mm. She, she announces the good news. That's awesome. And works with her son through that healing that he so d- deeply desires for us, right? right? Yeah, beautiful. Um, another question, it's a little bit of a fun one as well, but this is from Aaron uh, from St. Mary's in Royal Oak and Allison of Old St. Mary's in Detroit. They ask, if you can meet any historical figure or saint, living or deceased, who would it be and why? And what might you ask them to talk about? Well, uh, it's not, again, it's, I'm not sure this is the only one, right. the very one, and <laughs> we'll we can maybe talk about episodes. these, yeah. some of the other ones. 
But a figure, a historical figure that I really find fascinating is Alcuin. Alcuin was uh, an English monk who, in the late 8th century, the early 9th century, uh, caught the attention of Charlemagne. And uh, he was a very learned man. And so Charlemagne brought him to uh, his court to really establish a school system to transform these, uh, I mean, these Franks, they, they really were Vikings at one time. Yeah. They, they wasn't too many uh, years before Charlemagne that they were out, you know, knocking the head of monks and yeah. pillaging right. and robbing. Barbarians. And yeah. so uh, he had this goal to transform them into civilized Christians. And Alcuin was his schoolmaster, and so really created a whole stream of culture huh. uh, about uh, Western civilization. Yeah. He's, he's a father of Western civilization. And I'd like to ask him, how was that for you? And, uh, <laughs> I bet. What... Uh, how did you face the challenges of it, and why didn't you give up? I mean, when they were illiterate and uh, were still happy to pull their axes out and fight yeah. with one right. another. Wow. <laughs> I learned me something. I never even heard of Alcoin before. Oh, no, that's... Had it. you, Mary? No. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. that's, yeah, that's great. That's a, and yeah, like how'd you do it? Because sometimes I'm sure even in, in your ministry... There are hostile moments. <laughs> there are people that are, you know, so to... Well, I think that uh, <clears throat> every act of education is really a kind of process of transforming barbarians in, <laughs> it's yeah, true. Yeah. into civilized men and women. You yeah. are right. Luckily, we're not carrying axes all the time nowadays. That's true. We <laughs> don't have axes. But I mean, maybe, I don't know. In some ways, they're just not physical ones. Um, Okay, Elizabeth from St. Joan of Arc asks this question. What prayer do you find yourself reciting in your sleep because you pray it so much? Just always goes through your head. And again, I'm going to redirect this a little bit. It isn't so much that I say it in my sleep, but when I wake up, there are uh, two prayers that I repeat. It's much better than counting sheep. (laughs) Uh, One is the... uh, the saying from the miraculous medal, O Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. And the other is, uh, it's actually a simplification of the Jesus prayer, Jesus, Savior, save us. Hmm. Because, of course, uh, Jesus is Hebrew for God saves. Hmm. And uh, I read one, I'm sorry, I don't recall, this was the dying prayer of a martyr. Mm. And it it's just very simple, and uh, I find it, it's good in the middle of the night to make that a prayer. Yeah, Archbishop. One final question for you: Is there anything that we, as your as your uh, your sheepfold, could pray for for you, our shepherd? Is there anything, any special intentions you might have, or any specific things we can pray for you, especially in the upcoming month? Like anything that you want us to focus our prayers on for you? Hmm. Please pray that I have good wisdom about how to give pastoral care to my brother priests and deacons. It's a great one. We will absolutely keep that in mind. The convocation is coming, right? It is. And actually, that's the convocation with the priests. And uh, uh, just as that concludes, there's a smaller convocation with the permanent deacons. Awesome. Yeah, we will keep those in prayer and that um, the Holy Spirit really enlightens you to be able to encourage them and walk with them in a unique way. 
Archbishop, would you mind closing us with a prayer and a blessing? Happy to. Thank you. Lord God, pour out your strength upon us, all who hear us through this medium. Give us the light we need in order to give you glory and fulfill the mission entrusted to us. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. St. Anne, pray, pray for, for us. Blessed Solanus, pray, pray for, for us. us. Thank you for your blessing, Archbishop. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also like the Open Door Policy Podcast with Father Steve Pullis and Danielle Center, a podcast for joyful missionary disciples and our movement to unleash the gospel. Find it on your favorite podcast app.